from Share Cancer Support, this is Our MBC Life, a podcast dedicated to exploring life with metastatic breast cancer from the perspective of us, the people living with this disease, and the experts who partner with us to help make our lives better. I'm Lisa Laudico, and with me today is my co-host, Shantae Randall. Welcome. So glad you're here, since no one should face MBC alone. Today's podcast continues our conversation on brain meds. In the previous episode, we spoke with NBC patients regarding their experience living with brain meds. Today, we ask the expert and speak with Dr. Lynn, an oncologist with extensive knowledge on the risk, symptoms, diagnosis, and recent research and developments surrounding brain meds. Brain metastases are secondary brain tumors that occur in 10 to 30% of adults with cancer. These tumors can cause damage by putting pressure on parts of the brain as they grow, destroying or invading brain tissue, putting pressure on the skull, causing fluid buildup in the brain and causing brain bleeding. Brain mets come with a variety of symptoms that reduce quality of life, such as headaches, seizures, changes in mental function or mood, sensory perception, balance, coordination, and pulse and breathing rates. The main treatments for brain METs are surgery, radiation, and chemotherapy. One particularly successful treatment is proton therapy, a type of radiation that stops at a specific part of the targeted tissue. Proton therapy is extremely precise, and therefore it is more effective at targeting cancerous cells without damaging surrounding breast tissue. It's used as an alternative to conventional radiation therapy. After surgery, a breast cancer patient may receive two to six weeks of proton therapy. The treatment is non-invasive and painless, effective for treating early-stage breast cancer, and results in quicker recovery times with minimal side effects. It has also been shown to have little to no impact on a patient's energy level after treatment, allowing them to feel less drained after an appointment than they would after a typical radiation session. Living with brain mets is extremely difficult because not only do the symptoms reduce one's quality of life, but many patients with brain mets are also denied treatment in essential clinical trials. A 2018 survey of over 400 clinical trials found that 41% of trials included patients with brain mets, only though if their central nervous system disease was previously treated. 26% included patients with CNS, central nervous system involvement, and no previous treatment. Patients with progressive brain mets are often excluded from clinical trials because they are known to have poor prognosis. Most systemic treatments fail to penetrate the blood-brain barrier, and there is a high risk of CNS hemorrhage or toxicity. Carolyn McCoach, MD, PhD, investigator at the CU Cancer Center, articulated the problem with excluding brain meds patients from clinical trials in an eloquent fashion. She stated, if we fail to include patients on the trial of a drug that does work in the brain, we may not discover the drug's activity for a long time and patients who may benefit would be inappropriately excluded. Because of clinical trial exclusion and lack of focused research, brain mets represent an unmet medical need in solid tumor care. This is especially true for brain mets and breast cancer, where brain metastases are frequent and result in impaired quality of life and death, 
the treatment options available are limited and usually involve multimodality approaches that include surgery, radiotherapy, radiosurgery, and rarely systematic therapy. Additionally, the outcomes of these treatments remain disappointing. Our guest today is Dr. Nancy Lin, the Director of the Metastatic Breast Cancer Program at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Dr. Lin received her MD from Harvard Med School, then went on to complete an internal medicine program at Brigham and Women's Hospital, and fellowships in oncology and hematology at Dana-Farber. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Lin. Thank you so much for having me. Hi, Dr. Lynn. I'm Shantae Randall, and I'm triple negative MBC patient. I wanted to ask you a couple little questions to, to start the conversation off to see how you started down this road. What made you decide to go into the medical field in general, specifically to choose oncology and hematology? So I've always been interested in human health, and I, you know, even as a kid, I remember like when you read magazines or whatnot. Um, you sort of gravitate to certain sections, and I never really gravitated to the business sections. I gravitated towards like the health and medicine and science flesh sections, which I know sounds a little nerdy, but that's true. And then as I got older, I actually had done some time as a researcher in various laboratories and found that very interesting. But what I missed so much when I did that was just human interaction. Not that there's not human interaction in the lab, but it's just it's not the same as being a doctor. I actually had a little bit of a funny journey where I, I was pre-med in college, but I actually studied music sort of on the side and then ended up in medical school. And what I really found so interesting about oncology was that it really allowed the sort of combination of science and medicine thinking about sort of people interactions. And I really liked that. I really liked that things were really moving in oncology. You could feel that like there was progress. You could feel that you could be sort of on the cutting edge of something really exciting. And I, I really liked the human interaction. And I like the fact that in oncology, you're not ta- you really are not taking care of like an organ. You know, you're not taking care of somebody's heart. You're not taking care of somebody's kidney. Believe me, there's nothing wrong with being a cardiologist. But I just really liked that you, you really had the feeling, I had the feeling like you're taking care of a real person and you're not taking care of the cancer, you know? And, and so, and I gravitated towards the people in oncology. I mean, I think that, you know, and you hopefully have had this experience where the nurses and the pharmacists, the secretaries and the doctors and the patients, like everybody has a certain something about them that is just, it's a very special place to work in an oncology clinic. And it's hard to describe when you, when you talk at a dinner party, people, sometimes they, you probably have had this experience too, when they hear that you you've had cancer, right? When they hear that I'm an oncologist, people say, oh, that, that must be, you know, what, what a <laughs> horrible, you know? And of course, there are horrible and sad times because things happen to people and, 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 and that's what we're here for. If, if nobody had cancer, I wouldn't have the job that I have. But it's, there's something really, really special about the human connection. And there's something really special about being able to put the science together with the human connection that I think is really unique about oncology. That was an amazing answer. In my experience, from the nurses to the front desk staff, they get to know me. And as they see me, then they've met my family. And, they're, they, and they see me out in public. And they speak. And they ask me how I'm doing and stuff yeah. like that. It does take a definite different calling and a different type of person to, to be able to deal with it. But it is, they are all amazing that I've come into contact with. So that's really, that really does fall in line with what you're saying. Yeah. 
Yeah, I would agree. I have had similar positive experiences, but I loved your analogy of the party, the dinner party. That happens a lot to Shantae and I because, you know, you're at a dinner party and people find out what your diagnosis is. They want to go to the other side of the room or leave. I don't take it personally anymore. Right, but you sort of learn how to, right, you learn how to, what you're going to say or how you're going to respond. And and also a little bit about, from a patient perspective, I'm sure there's a sense of like protecting yourselves from the sort of, you know, because some people can say things inadvertently that are not helpful, let's say. Right. Well, I know I can, I know Shantae does this too, but I use it as little learning opportunities wherever yeah. I go, you know, and it's, it's yeah. okay because it, cancer is scary. Stage four metastatic breast cancer is terrifying for many people, for lots of people. And so it's an opportunity to educate and and that helps turn the the awkwardness into sometimes a more positive conversation and, and one that can lead to action. So so that's so true. So my the next question is like, are there any talking about brain mats, but moving specifically into that, but are there any symptoms that often go unnoticed that metastatic breast cancer patients should be aware of regarding brain metastases? Yes. The thing that people often think about, which actually turns out not to be the most common presenting symptoms, uh, are things like memory loss or seizures. So when people start saying, I'm forgetting things, or they worry they're going to have a seizure, in fact, that's actually, although that can happen, it's actually, for example, memory loss would be a very unusual presentation of brain metastases. And seizure, although it can happen, you know, the estimates are that perhaps somewhere around 10 or 15% of brain meds patients have seizures as the first symptom that prompts the MRI scan. And so most of the time, it's actually headaches is actually one of the most common symptoms. Mm -hmm. Uh, So headaches, especially headaches that happen in the morning, especially headaches if they happen with nausea or vomiting. And of course, it's always a little hard to tease out because often people are on chemotherapy. And so you're trying to figure out whether the headache and the nausea is related to the chemo or to the anti-nausea medicines versus to something that's more concerning. But I think that though that sort of you know headache, nausea, vomiting is a more common symptom actually than the ones that people often sort of are really, really scared about that is seizure or thinking problems or things like that, which are actually a little less common as the reason that that initial scan is, is done. Um, certainly things like weakness on one side or things like that would be of concern. Cancer also in the brain can also end up in the spinal cord, so weakness in the, in the legs or problems with urination, those would all be uh, concerning symptoms. But by far and away, when we've uh, done surveys of patients with brain metastases, the, the most common symptom that people in common have is headaches. So are there any certain factors in metastatic breast cancer patients that could put them at higher risk of developing brain mets? Yes. So the first thing is that from the audience perspective, you know, if you're listening in and you have a diagnosis of early stage breast cancer, you know, cancer showing up in the brain as the first location is fortunately still quite uncommon. And so for patients who have stage one or stage two breast cancer, the chance that they're going to develop cancer in the brain is still fortunately quite low. But once people have metastatic breast cancer, there are some features that actually seem to predispose The first is a subtype of breast cancer. So patients with HER2-positive breast cancer are more likely to develop brain metastases, and also patients who have triple-negative breast cancer. For the majority of patients who have hormone receptor-positive breast cancer, that is HER2-negative, the chance of developing cancer in the brain is lower, although it's not zero, and it still does happen. 
And then there are some other factors that seem to relate. So, for example, presence of lung metastases, cancer in the lung, does seem to associate with cancer also going to the brain. And finally, there's some uh, emerging data that patients who have BRCA1 or BRCA2 uh, hereditary alterations, regardless of the subtype of their breast cancer, may also be at higher risk. And just to follow up on that last point about the BRCA mutations perhaps leading to a higher occurrence, perhaps, are there any other mutations that are being looked at, or is it just primarily the BRCA gene mutation? So in terms of inherited genes, the one where there's the the most data at this point is for BRCA1 and 2, although there is some discussion about whether some of the other DNA repair genes might relate to the risk of brain metastases, but the data are less, less strong. If we also look at genes in the cancer itself, there there is one report from the Mass General Group that perhaps patients who have estrogen-positive breast cancers, which again are generally at lower risk, but patients who have uh, a mutation in the PIK3CA gene, which is about 30 to 40% of estrogen-positive patients, they may also be at higher risk. So far, it's, it's one report from one group, so we'll have to be, it'll have to be confirmed, mm-hmm. but that may be a risk factor as well. Thank you. Good to know. Okay, so in kind of keeping with that, wanted to ask the question, why does regular brain imaging screening not exist within the MBC community at a greater risk for it um, without symptoms? I know I, I think I gave myself headaches yeah. when I was first became metastatic and I was thinking everything was a symptom. Right. And, you know, my doctor was, my oncologist was like, okay, so we're just going to order a brain MRI when we have everything else done just yeah. so that we get a baseline. And then since I moved on to a study, she did an additional one because I have like frozen shoulder syndrome and then I had it in my vertebrae. Okay. So yeah. it was, it was further indications to do it, but yeah. it weren't like me having the symptoms or, you know, having it in the spine. How come it's not more of a standard care? Right. So it's a really good question, and there are sort of both good reasons and bad reasons for it, I will say. You know, if we look at other kinds of cancers, patients who have lung cancer, for example, or melanoma skin cancer, they very typically will get MRIs of the brain uh, because Mm -hmm. those are other cancers where cancer showing up in the brain is quite common. But what's a little different about those cancers is when they show up, when the cancers show up in the brain, it, it often is quite early into the disease course you know, sort of soon around the time of diagnosis, patients often will have brain metastases. But the reason in terms of breast cancer also has to do with the, with the fact that we don't know for sure whether detecting brain metastases early is beneficial to patients. And although this seems a little strange, right, because you would imagine if you find it early, you can treat it earlier. And that may be true and very well be true. But it's also true that some of the treatments that we have do have side effects and that some of the chemotherapies that we use for patients routinely actually have some brain activity and that because of the way that we have historically treated patients with brain metastases, for example, suppose you know somebody had a little four millimeter area in the brain and they started some chemotherapy, let's say doxel. It turns out doxel sometimes can work in the brain. If we didn't know that that area was there, they might get the doxel and their the, the area might get better and we would never know about it and they would have we would have spared that person radiation and all the side effects associated with it. And then the other so that's a good reason. But the bad reason also is that we're sometimes afraid of getting them because we don't want to exclude patients from clinical trials. And I know that's gonna be a topic that comes up later, but 
you know, I would consider that not a good reason, right? Because that's a reason we have control over, like we can stop excluding patients from trials and then we don't have to worry about that as the reason that we're not you know, getting MRIs. And then finally, you know, some of the radiation and treatments, especially whole brain radiation, they do have side effects that can be long-term and lifelong. And so again, this whole idea of what is the best balance between finding them early and perhaps avoiding people getting radiation uh, or get, avoiding people getting more is extensive radiation versus finding them early and then ending up radiating people who might have done well with chemotherapy or targeted um, treatments. So my colleague, Al Azer, actually at the Dana-Farber is running a, a clinical trial to look at screening MRIs in patients with breast cancer and specifically focusing on people who are starting either their first or second course of chemo for metastatic breast cancer of all subtypes. So triple negative, hormone receptor positive, HER2 uh, positive. And also the study is also including patients with inflammatory breast cancer, even if they don't have metastatic disease, because we, it turns out that patients with IBC also have a somewhat higher risk of developing brain mets. And, and the study actually will, is doing brain MRIs basically when people start their, their chemo treatment, and then when the cancer gets worse outside of the brain, the MRI is repeated. And the reason it's timed that way as opposed to like every couple of months on a schedule is because we want people who are even as part of clinical trials to be able to participate. And if you randomly do MRI scans sort of not timed with anything else, you could actually screw up somebody's clinical trial treatment, right? Because if you develop, if you did an MRI scan like three weeks after they started on a trial and lo and behold, you you found new brain meds, they might not really be new, but the patient will be kicked off the trial. We don't want that to happen. So that's the way that that's why this study is designed the way it is. And um, that is a study that actually, you know, is not something that any drug company is going to fund, right? Because there's no drug involved, it's MRI. It's a very unique MRI sequence. It's actually, it takes 10 minutes in the scanner. So as opposed to uh, 45 minutes to 60 minutes, and we're testing both a new kind of MRI as well as what is the role of MRI. And that study is actually being funded by the uh, combination of the ASCO Development Award to Dr. Azer and the Breast Cancer Research Foundation. So we're excited to be able to do, you know, a study like this, which is so practical, right? This is such a common question. And it's so frustrating as a doctor to be able to say, well, it's not that we have data showing it's harmful. We also don't have data showing it's helpful. We just don't have the data, you know, and that's a very frustrating answer to give. And for patients, it's a very frustrating answer to hear. Right, definitely. Oh, so we'll be looking forward for that information to come out when it's yeah. ready study because it that that does make sense. And I like the way that it was set up is very thoughtful in that to not interfere with people on other right. clinical trials because that is definitely an issue that we we're going to mention a little shortly. So I'm a part, as I said before, I'm a part of the Mesetic Breast Cancer Alliance Breast Cancer Brain Mets Initiative, also known as the Marina Kaplan Project. And the reason why it's named for Marina Kaplan is because she was a fierce NBC advocate who developed brain mets. And even though she was an advocate, she was not able to be included in any clinical trials because of the brain mets. And so she, in fact, passed away from other mets in her body, not from the brain mets. And so if she had been allowed to join a clinical trial, perhaps it could have extended her life. Christine is very, very passionate. I never met her myself, but it's all near and dear to us in the, in the metastatic breast cancer community and with the Alliance. And so that's why we chose that name. So what advice do you give for metastatic breast cancer patients, especially those with brain mets and advocating for themselves to get into clinical trials? So Shante, this is a really, really good question. And I do think that things are changing slowly. 
you know, more slowly than any of us want, but, but I do see a change. You know, if we look 20 years ago, if you ever had brain metastases in your life, whether or not they were treated or stable or anything else, most clinical trials would exclude patients who had any history of brain metastases ever. And now that, that is really pretty uncommon. And at least at this point, the vast majority of trials allow people who have brain metastases if they're stable when they enter the trial. Now, that still doesn't help people who have brain metastases who are not stable, and I think that there, you know, there's two parts of the question. One is, you know, what can people do to advocate for themselves as far as their treatment right now? And then what can people do to advocate for future access to trials in the larger sort of scheme of things? So as far as like self-advocacy for your own treatment, you know, I think that there are a couple of centers across the U.S. who, you know, have people who are both breast cancer specialists and specialists in the care of people with brain metastases. And because there are definitely medications which, even if they don't have phase three data to support their use in patients to treat specifically cancer in the brain, there's enough data out there that there, there are reasonable things that could be tried and I think that seeing somebody who's a specialist in brain metastases gives people the best opportunity to hear about those options because they're not necessarily the things that are going to raise to the top of a general oncologist radar screen because the truth is they have so much that they need to keep track of that a small niche within breast cancer is not going to be something that they necessarily are you know, completely up to speed about not to make any criticism. It's just, that's just human nature. There's only so much that you, any one person can be expert at. And so, you know, there are a number of centers, you know, Dana-Farber obviously is one, Mass General, Duke, Carrie Anders at Duke, MD Anderson, I mean, the, the places that you might imagine, but there are definitely good places across the U.S. that you can get second opinions. And, and one of the silver linings of COVID, not that I would ever, you know, wish for it to happen, and I wish it would just not have happened, is that many places are offering telemedicine or video consultations, which we were not able to do before. And so even, you know, there are many people who don't at this point even need to get on a plane to get a second opinion, which is, I think, really, really amazing. So I think, you know, if you are personally diagnosed with brain metastases, I, I do think that, you know, getting a second opinion at a place where this is an area of specialty is generally a good idea. The second is just from the standpoint of Again, a good idea not only because of the access to non-trial treatments that they may be aware of, but also because those are the places are most likely to have clinical trials that allow patients with brain metastases to enroll. The second part really has to do with, well, what about, what can you do sort of nationally, internationally, globally? Like, what can we do to change the paradigm? And I think that this is where the advocates have a huge potential impact because, you know, at the end of the day advocates are the face of breast cancer and people respond to stories in a way that they don't respond to statistics. And I think that is just human nature. So when you hear about, you know, 50% of people with HER2 positive metastatic breast cancer at some point might develop brain metastases. And if you're not seeing patients yourself or you're not a patient, it sort of might kind of go over you. Like it doesn't have that impact, but when you are in a room, you know, let's suppose you're a, a drug manufacturer and you're in a room with a bunch of advocates and they all have brain metastases and they're talking with you and they're asking you and pushing you like, why, what, you know, why in this trial would you not include or what about thinking about 
another cohort in this study or whatever it is, it's a lot harder to say no, you know, because you really see a, a real person. And, and I think that that's really important. And, and not only because it's important to see a real person, but because there's just a lot of preconceived notions about how people with brain metastases look and live uh, their lives. And if you see somebody and they're, you know, really functional, not that everybody is, but you, you really re- recognize, like, wh- why are we excluding um, such a patient from our clinical trials? Like, that doesn't make any sense. So I think, I think the advocates have a huge, huge role to play. And certainly within some of the initiatives that I've been fortunate to be involved in, you know, the ad- we, we've purposely included advocates because they really are, are an important voice and not just sort of an add-on, you know, dressing. And so the National Brain Tumor Society, as you know, you know, had organized a workshop with the FDA and advocates were included in that. And as part of the ASCO Friends of Cancer Research, we, we were trying to improve how people think about eligibility for patients with brain metastases in clinical trials. And we purposely included advocates in, in that effort as well. So I think there are definitely opportunities to make your voice heard in a lot of ways that will help not only you know yourself, but also breast cancer patients as a whole, and not only breast cancer patients, because brain meds happen in other cancers too. Um, Thank you for that. Thank you for mentioning second opinions. And we'll make sure that in our episode notes, we'll show for our listeners links where they can actually get specific specific brain metastases specialists. So that's a really great and important point. What kind of questions would you suggest a patient ask before embarking on a clinical trial? Great question. So I think one important question to ask, people often ask about the phase of the trial, but even before asking about the phase of the trial, it's actually a totally fair question to ask your doctor, you know, why do you think this trial is a good idea for me? You know, what is it about this trial that made you think of this trial for me? Because, you know, trials have both scientific objectives, like we want to study drug X to see if it has, you know, Y effect. But as a doctor who takes care of a lot of patients and enrolls patients in trials, you know, my first priority is to the patient, right? And, and the reason the trial has certain eligibility is so that, you know, there's a certain type of patient who gets enrolled in the trial, but the doctor has a lot of discretion in terms of thinking about is this trial versus that, that trial, you know, we're kind of making our best bet in some way as to, you know, which trial treatment seems most interesting. And we're trying to think of it relative to what the standard treatment we might offer is. So I think it's a very fair question to say, well, what makes you think this trial is a good idea for me? Mm -hmm. You know, and and that's a really important, before you get to the, which phase is it? A lot of people ask that first, but I think the best question is, you know, why are you recommending this trial for me? Right? How does this drug work? You know, what do you expect to happen if, you know, if it's, if it's as successful as you hope, right? What do you think is going to happen? And then I think that there are questions about side effects. It's really important, right? You want to know what to expect. What is the known side effect profile of this medication? There are practical questions like how often do I have to come in? How often will the visits be? How often the scan's going to be? Do I have to do biopsies? Are there extra procedures that I need to go through? Those are very practical questions. You may want to ask who your doctor is going to be on the trial because you know, sometimes it might not be the doctor who's taking care of you, and that might be something that is going to be important in your um, considerations. 
If it's an early phase trial, you know, phase three trials have gone through, a lot of patients have received the drug by the time it gets to phase three. But if it's an early phase trial, like a phase one trial, you might want to know, you know, approximately how many patients have received this drug so far, so that you have a sense of like, when people tell you what the side effects are anticipated to be, is that based on you know, animal data and like two people before you, or are there a hundred people who've entered before you? And, and we have a, you know, at least some sense of what the side effect profile um, might look like. And then I think you want to know things like, how long can I be on this trial? Or what would take me off the study? What are the kinds of things that would happen that would, would mean that I can't participate in the study anymore? So we've talked a little bit about how brain mats have denied people access to clinical trials. And that's still going on today. I know we're working to try to making making that different. But what do you what's the reason? Why do you think that happens? I'm I'm sure you know, but I'm just curious. So you know I think that the biggest reason, well the two biggest reasons are one, that at least historically people who had cancer go to the brain, it often happened really late in somebody's disease course. It often happened when people have gotten lots of previous chemotherapies, uh, people often were quite sick by the time they, they develop brain metastases, and the average survival was not very long. And so these are all things that made people who run trials or design trials really anxious about including patients on a trial of a new drug, which also could you know, introduce new side effects, and also new drugs where you're hoping to see some activity so that you can move it on to the next phase of development. Fortunately, for many patients, this is no longer true. I mean, there are still patients who do badly with brain metastases. I don't want to sugarcoat things. But there are also people who live for years with their brain metastases, and they raise their families, and they go to work, and they volunteer in the communities, and they do all these things. And and I think that that group of patients has been less visible than they perhaps should be. And so the trials have been designed, colored by this sort of stereotypical vision of what somebody with brain metastases looks like. And again, I think that's why, you know, these sort of face-to-face, I know it's hard in the time of COVID, but these sort of face-to-face, you know, and other kinds of interactions between advocates and trial people who design trials are so important because it really reminds people like in a real way, like that was the past, you know, and again, I I don't want to sugarcoat things. There's still people who have a really hard time with brain metastases but there are also people who are alive five or even occasionally 10 or more years after a diagnosis for metastases. And so, you know, that, there's no reason that that person should be excluded from clinical trials. The other is that a lot of times in the past, and even now, we sort of assume that if a drug can't cross the intact blood-brain barrier in an animal, that it's not going to work in patients who have brain metastases because obviously you need a drug to get into the cancer in order for the drug to work. It turns out that actually there are so many examples at this point of drugs that if you put them in an animal without brain metastases, you can't detect the drug in the brain. But if you treat a person who has brain metastases, the brain metastases will shrink. And that's because the blood-brain barrier becomes leaky when there's brain metastases. And it becomes leaky enough that there are a lot of drugs, I mean, not unlimited drugs, but there are a number of drugs that that do work. And and so if you were developing a drug and you saw in animals it didn't get into the brain, you might just say, off the bat, I'm not going to include anybody with brain metastases in, in, in my trials. But I think we have so many examples now that that just that relationship is not actually one-to-one. 
There are plenty of drugs that don't get in, which work fine once there is cancer in the brain. That's not a good excuse anymore, <laughs> but it takes a while for culture to change. You know? <laughs> Definitely. So we wanted to take a quick break right here just to let you all know that we will have a listing of the cancer institutes around the country that specialize in brain metastases in our episode notes found on our website at www.rmbclife.org. Okay, now back to our interview with Dr. Nancy Lynn of the Dana-Farber Institute. So to build upon that, what are some different facts about a patient that would consider you or weigh, you would weigh when deciding what course of treatment to take, whether it be a clinical trial, whole brain radiation, proton beam radiation, or regular systemic yep. IV chemo? Right. So, you know, in if somebody has brain metastases that are in need of treatment, meaning that they've grown or there's a new uh, spot, I always you know, go through this checklist in my mind because I, I want to be very systematic and, and make sure that I'm considering all options. So one option surgery, one option is some sort of focused radiation, whether that's gamma knife or cyber knife or SRS. One option is whole brain radiation and one option is some sort of systemic treatment, whether that's chemo or targeted treatment or something like that. You know, I always, in my mind, go through each of those, even if I know that one of them is not going to be an option because I, I just like to make sure that every time I'm thinking about with a patient what's the right next course, that I put everything on the table and then we can cross things off as they are not are or not appropriate. In terms of the kinds of factors, the factors would be like how many areas are active in the brain, how big they are, where they're located, how bad they are relative to the patient's other cancer, right? Because if it's only in the brain that's getting worse for its versus it's like in the liver getting much worse and only a little bit worse in the brain, I would do very different things in those situations. And again, that's part of why I think having a connection with a place that sees a lot of patients with brain metastases is very useful because, you know, when I see patients, you know, I work very closely with the radiation oncologists and and neurosurgeons. And so if I have any question in my mind, like I'm not, you know, I'm trying to weigh the different options, right? I'm a medical oncologist. I'm not a radiation oncologist. I know a little bit about radiation, obviously, but then I, I will just turn to my colleague and ask, you know, can you look at this person's scan? Let's talk about the history by phone. And sometimes he'll see the person in, in formally as a consultation. And, and I think that's really helpful because I kind of know the limits of what I know. And, and then I, have assembled a team that, that I trust and I, I trust their clinical judgment. And, you know, these are sort of things that oftentimes we're trying as a team to figure out what's the best thing. And then the team includes the patient because, you know, some of these treatments are not, it's not obvious sometimes what the best treatment is. There's trade-offs. We could try this and this could happen good and this could happen bad, or we could try this and this could happen good or this could happen bad. And different people have different feelings of what kinds of risks and benefits they're willing to, to take on. So, uh, you know, I always think of taking care of people as a, as a team approach. And I know my colleagues do as well. And and this is no exception. I think that it's something where, you know, every time something, somebody has cancer in the brain, that gets worse. Again, I, I sort of go through this checklist in my mind because I, I really want to leave no stone unturned. And I, and I want to make sure that we're doing the best thing for the person, you know, at that moment in time. Awesome. So to talk about clinical trials that are open right now, I know there are a whole bunch and they can go on, on clinicaltrials.gov. Right. But what kind of trials open right now? 
that are open for recruitment do you think brain meds patients would be most successful in? Like word on the street or amongst other oncologists? There is a, uh, for HER2 positive patients, there is a trial called HER2 CLIMB 002, which is looking at a HER2 oral drug called Ticatinib in combination with Cadzilla or TDM1. So this is a phase three trial. People either get TDM1 by itself or TDM1 with Ticatinib. Uh, both drugs, both TDM1 and Ticatinib, have been shown to work in the brain. So everybody gets TDM1 and some people get the Ticatinib added to it. And this trial does allow patients with brain metastases to enroll, including patients whose brain metastases are either stable or getting worse. Uh, So all types of patients with brain metastases are allowed on that study. My colleague, Rachel Friedman, um, has a study called TBCRC022, which is looking at a a similar combination, TDM1 uh, or Cadzilla, in combination with the oral drug neratinib. And that one's not randomized, so all patients with brain metastases, that's who's allowed on the study, receive both drugs together. And that study actually allows people to get both TDM1 and neratinib, even if they've had TDM1 before. Um, So for HER2, I think those are two, you know, interesting um, studies that are out there for patients with active brain metastases. For estrogen receptor positive breast cancer, at least right now, the landscape is a little you know, unfortunately, there's not as much out there. And the studies are usually small, sort of, you know, one center at a time studies, which is, again, why seeing a person who specializes, they can also sometimes help you help with the search in terms of finding things that are maybe in the local site. Uh, And there is a very good website called brainmetsbc.org. I think that's what it's called. I'll have to look up the exact link. You'll have to check it for me. Okay. Um, but, uh, yeah. but anyways, I look at it when I see people where I don't have an obvious trial that I can think of because it's actually a very nice clearinghouse for the brain that's trials that are out there nationally. And then for triple negative breast cancer, there are a number of places that are running sort of immunotherapy-based studies because immunotherapy, of course, is a hot thing in, in triple negative breast cancer. And so There are some studies of immunotherapy that allow patients with brain metastases to enroll. And then there will actually be a study of sazituzumab or tridelvi, and that's going to likely open within SWOG, which is one of the U.S. cancer clinical trial cooperative groups, and will then be opened across the other cooperative groups as well. So that study hopefully will move through. It's kind of in the various review processes right now. And I hope that that will will open because that will then give really national access for patients who have essentially HER2 negative brain metastases to have an option for a clinical trial of what we hope may be a very effective regimen. Yes, I'm so excited. I had the opportunity when I was hosting with uh, Coleman Advocates in Science to interview Dr. Bardia. Oh, great. Oh, good. Amazing. And so we got to talk. The questions I asked was, wow. On that first study, was right. it known to co- to cross the blood-brain barrier? And he said yes, and they were actually getting that that trial together. So I'm very familiar with that, and I'm, I'm excited. I don't have brain meds myself, but it just, anything that's new and changes and give people hope, it always right. makes me so excited to learn about these things. Right. Well, MD Anderson, actually, they have been doing a study where patients who need to go to the operating room for clinical reasons, not because of the trial, because the, the doctor recommended that they have something in their brain removed, you know, brain net removed, 
are receiving Tridelvi prior to surgery, and then when they have the surgery, researchers can actually measure the levels of Tridelvi in the brain mat um, to really understand, like, does it get into a significant degree? And I, you know, I think that my sense is that they're, they're, they are, have been very successful recruiting patients. It's a really hard study to recruit to because you have to have, find people who are like going to have surgery and willing to push it off a little bit to get a dose of drug. But I think they've been very successful at recruiting. And I hope that maybe, you know, sometime over the next uh, six to 12 months, we'll see results of that study. I think it'll be really interesting. Yes, excited. Mm-hmm. Always new stuff. Now, now I see why you wanted to become an oncologist. No, it's always new stuff. It's never boring. And people are doing all sorts of really interesting things. Right? You know, there are people who are like in the lab doing really basic research. And there are people out there trying to figure out how to, you know, improve the uptake of mammography. You know, it's like it, the kind of research and the kind of activities people are doing are really diverse. And I think that's it's just really interesting. It's never boring. Right. Oh, it's never boring, but I love the examples that you've given, Dr. Lynn, that show creativity in, in really looking at this problem with a, with, new, with a new lens. And I think that's how we're going to get to the outcomes we're looking for. I think right? so, yeah. So it's, it is a very exciting time. How can we change, there is stigma always, but how can we change the stigma around brain meds so that uh, these patients can have a broader spectrum of options? And so this is really back to what can advocates do to help change the stigma? So let us know. What, tell, us, tell us what you think. So again, I think that, I think that a picture or a video is worth a thousand words in a way. And I, you know, it's so interesting. I, I, as part of what I do, I often host medical students and internal medicine residents in my clinic. And we will, you know, I will review the patient's case and we'll look at the scans and then we'll go in and see the, the patient together. And it's just, it's such a, it's such an eye-opening experience for trainees. And these are people who are like, you know, Harvard Medical students and residents at Brain Women's Hospital. I mean, these are, you know, pretty smart people who are not medically unsophisticated, but they're invariably just surprised when they meet the patients that I care for. Because, you know, when you look at someone's scan and you hear someone's history and you've not actually really interacted with somebody who has had breast cancer before, it's like, it's like totally eye-opening. And so I think on both levels, one, that there are people who are doing incredibly well that, you know, if you saw them and you interacted with them and they didn't tell you that they had metastatic breast cancer or brain meds, you would never be able to guess. And that's, I think, very important because these are people who eventually will become cardiologists and primary care doctors and whatnot. And if their only exposure to patients with brain meds is the patients who are sick enough to be in the hospital, their view forever is, is really very inaccurate in terms of what the majority of somebody's life looks like. At the same time, it's really important to see people who are sick, who have symptoms from brain mets, who are suffering from the symptoms, because it tells us, like, this is why it's so important to do something about it. So it's sort of seeing both, you know, it's, it's, it's not just seeing the, the happy pictures. I mean, not that anybody with brain mets is totally happy. They have brain mets, but but it's really seeing the whole spectrum is so important. And it's something that a textbook or an article, it, it just doesn't capture. It really doesn't stick with people in the way that meeting somebody, knowing somebody really sticks with people. And I think, you know, from an advocate standpoint, 
also over time, it really makes a difference. Like when you see somebody and you meet them for the first time and they're super functional and doing really well, and then you see them suffering through something, it's a very different feeling than if you only saw them when they weren't doing well. Right. You know, it's really, really different. And then it's really different when you see that same person like respond to their next treatment. You know, it's just, there's just no substitute for that. Like no amount of data table or, you know, data curve or thing really can capture that feeling. And that's the kind of thing that's just really, really, I just can't stress how important that is. And it certainly got me thinking as you were talking, Dr. Lynn, that in this time of the pandemic and we've been utilizing telehealth, well, there's other creative solutions to having those medical students actually meet your patients in person. And so maybe that is something that advocates can help you with in terms of this broader-based education that really it's about telling the story of metastatic breast cancer patients with brain mets. Right. And, and that whole diversity of experience that that represents right. and, and that providing that for leaders like yourself will help so that, you know, if you don't have a great example on the day that you have a bunch of medical students yeah. trailing around, at least, at least you can have some of this other information. Right. We can have a bunch of poster people <laughs> or right. we right. can figure out ways to do that. So that was a really interesting point. That's really interesting because, you know, it's so interesting the kinds of things that all the Zoom stuff has unleashed, which is that, you know, for example, we are planning, a, you know, every year we have a, we have an in, we had an in-person educational forum for patients with metastatic cancer, and we are converting it to online this year. And as we were talking with the patients on our advisory council about the kinds of things that we might do, I mean, it just, it sort of expands the options in a way that we hadn't really thought about before, which were, of course, accessible before. I mean, it's not like we couldn't do these things before, but all of a sudden, like, we are really thinking about these things. And I think that's a great idea. I, I think having patient, you know, interactions in this way, or, you know, we do this in medical school. In medical school, they often will have a patient come and, you know, like your first year of medical school, and they'll, somebody will sit in front and be interviewed. But I, I could imagine that that could be you know, expanded to a dramatic degree with video in, in a really interesting way. It's a really interesting idea. Well, we'll definitely, Shante and I will take it back to the Metastatic Breast Cancer Alliance. They're, they always love it when we come up with new ideas. Yeah. <laughs> but they love it. But yeah. I actually think this is something that really makes sense because we're talking about fueling the future right. with new ideas around what right. these brain mets really And then the other sort of group that I think would be really interesting are primary care doctors because, you know, as a primary care doctor, the number of people you, you personally take care of in your practice who have metastatic breast cancer and then the number who have metastatic breast cancer with brain meds, you know, it's very small actually, even for a large practice. And some primary care doctors are amazing and they, they just are such good doctors to their patients and they are such good partners to work with and caring for patients. And, you know, some don't really know very much about metastatic breast cancer and have very outdated assumptions that then they convey to patients and and then the patients come back and they're very distraught. So, you know, you might, you might have had these experiences, I don't know. So actually, I think that would be pretty, because, you know, because the, the primary care doctors, they will learn, they'll learn the statistics and they learn like sort of, you know, generally speaking, what the treatments are. But Again, you know, seeing somebody and interacting with them in person or or by Zoom, whatever it is, really is very meaningful. Definitely. 
Well, our final question for you, and you've been incredibly generous with your time, but is, as we've alluded to, we're in this very unprecedented period in, the, in world history. It's just challenging in so many other ways. So we ask every single one of our guests on this podcast how they maintain their balance in life, their mental health, and to have you share what you do to keep yourself healthy. Yep. It's a great question. I mean, this is such a difficult time. It's a difficult time because things just don't feel like, you know, I, I'm a little bit of a control freak. Uh, my husband was a lot of a control freak. And I don't like this because I don't like the lack of, I don't like being in, you know, not being in control, which, you know, I have to say, like, I have gained a new level of empathy for my patients because, you know, when you have metastatic breast cancer, you don't always feel like you're in control. And, and I, I get it in a way that I think I didn't, you know, I thought I might've got it, but I, I get it in a different way now. I think that, you know, it's really important in this time of social distancing, like people need human interaction. And it doesn't have to be in person, but it, there has to be something. And I think that's the thing that has really helped is, you know, maintaining human inter- interactions and you know, maintaining, making sure I, I set aside the time for my family, set aside time to talk with my friends and various relatives has been really helpful. And then I personally have found actually the, the, med- like the meditation apps on the, that you can get on the iPhone to be really, really helpful. I've enjoyed doing that. I've sort of thought about it for a while before this, but I didn't really do anything about it. And I did. So I think that's really helpful. And then, you know, again, like a silver lining of, of COVID is that there's a lot of therapy that's actually available online. So there's online psychiatry, there's online therapists. And like, all of a sudden, like, it's like totally possible. And you don't have to like, go to some office and, you know, figure out where to put your kids and park and drive and pay for parking and all this sort of weight and everything. So I think that that is something which if, if you are feeling in need of mental health services, like take advantage of the fact that there's telehealth. I mean, I think it's amazing and really, I think, has the potential to make mental health services much more accessible to people who have like lots of other things going on in their lives and they can't like spend, you know, an hour getting to somewhere and an hour getting back and all this stuff that goes along with it. So I would take advantage of some of these strange silver linings that COVID has, has unleashed. (laughs) It's so true, right? We have to look for all of our silver linings, but I do have a follow-up question about telehealth. And I agree with you that telehealth is actually been a really nice part, surprise, a nice surprise from this whole time. But what are you finding or hearing about insurance coverage of telehealth going forward? Yeah, I mean, I think that this is something where we'll have to see where things go. I mean, so before COVID, there were so many restrictions that it was just not practically possible, including restrictions on licensing, right? Because like, I'm not licensed to practice in New Hampshire. And what if Mm -hmm. I'm sitting in New Hampshire? I'm sort of practicing medicine in New Hampshire. And then the other part is reimbursement, because at the end of the day, like, you know, for better or worse, there's an income stream that comes from seeing patients. And, you know, depending on how much you're paid for a telehealth visit versus an in-person visit, that's going to create certain incentives that we may or may not uh, like. But I, at the same time, I think that we've all seen the benefits. There's nothing that substitutes for seeing a patient in person. And there's, there's certain things that you just have to do in person. Like you really can't do a breast exam on video, like you just can't do it. Or a lymph node exam, like, you just, you got to see the person in person. 
And there's some things where, you know, it's better, better news. Sometimes the news is better delivered in person. Not always, but, but oftentimes it is. But what I hope is that there's going to be such a groundswell of support that like one, one day COVID will be behind us. Uh, I hope sooner rather than later. And I hope that this telehealth doesn't go away with that because I think that people have really seen how much it can be helpful and how it can really reduce the burden on some of our patients a lot. Patients who might need a week, uh, monthly blood count and to check in, do they really need to drive two hours to do that? No. I hope that some of those innovations will will last. And I think they probably will, because I think enough people have seen the benefit that they're not going to let it go so easily. Right, Uh, right. Right. And especially if doctors like you are saying, this is something I want. Yes. (laughs) Right. Right. It's not just the patients clamoring. It's the doctors are saying, and I think you're right. It's about having it as an option, right? It's not going to, it's not going to replace everything, but it's, it can absolutely, I think, improve healthcare for the the reasons you stated. It's just, it's trying to find the right mix. And it also is going to depend on the specialty. You know, there are some specialties that, you know, basically just are going to have to be in person, right? Because it is really need to be in person. If you're, you have a new breast lump and you want to figure out if you need a mastectomy or lumpectomy, it's just got to be in person. I mean, unless we have some robot that can go out and examine the patient, which we will mm-hmm. have someday. <laughs> but, you know, I think other specialties, I think it'll be really interesting to see what help happens with mental health services, right? I, I don't mm. think necessarily go to somebody's couch really and I would love to have you know that part of things maintained because I think it actually improves access a lot um, mm-hmm. for patients I mean there's also the reimbursement issues about mental health in general right from insurance but I, right. I think it really improves the idea if you have young kids you know and you don't have to drive somewhere to access a therapist I mean you're going to be more likely to use that service and I think that's a good thing Definitely. I totally agree. Well, I want to thank you so much for your time today. And we'll make sure that all the really great trials that you mentioned are going to be included in our episode notes. Great. And so people can have access to that information. Thank you so much. Uh, we'll be letting you know what happens to our video idea. I think you could probably be recruited to do the intro for us. So, but stay, stay tuned. That's what happens in this world. We just kind of get an idea and then we run with it. That's kind of what Shante does too. So, it was such a pleasure. Thank you so much, Dr. Lynn. Thank you. Thanks to both of you. This podcast was produced by me, Lisa Laudico, along with our collaborative podcast team of Jersey Baker, Victoria Goldberg, Sheila McGlone, Rainey Ortica, Shante Randall, and Anne Woodward. Our executive producer is Christine Benjamin, Senior Director of Patient Services and Education at SHARE. Interning with us is Elena Golub and Angelica Alberstadt and Amy Tedeschi. Special thanks to Beth Costello and Rainey Ortica, who designed our logo, and to the team at SHARE, Jill Golden, Carol Evans, and Amanda Russell for their support. You can find more episodes of our NBC Life wherever you find your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe and look for a new podcast every Monday.